I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Amanda Littman, and this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount. Our guest this week is Maurice Mitchell, who is the national director of the Working Families Party. I wanted to have Mo on the show this week to talk about Working Families Party because I think what they're building is so interesting. It's kind of a third party, kind of integrated with the Democratic Party, kind of distinct in ideology, kind of distinct in organizing mechanisms. And I think Mo is one of the best thinkers on the progressive side right now. He really understands how to navigate the tension between having a visionary ideal for what America could be and how to get there and a really pragmatic sense of what the path there looks like. So I was really glad to have him on the show today and to have what I think is one of our more optimistic and uplifting conversations in a while. And I want to flag, since we talk about fusion voting in our conversation, and I know most folks are not New Yorkers or might not be New Yorkers who don't know what that actually means, I wanted to define it for you. Uh, What it looks like in practice is that more than one political party can support a common candidate. So Joe Biden, for example, was on the party line for both the Democratic Party and the Working Families Party. I could have voted for him in 2020 in either of one of those. And there are certain thresholds that the Working Families Party or any other third party needs to meet uh, in a fusion voting system in order to stay on the ballot in subsequent election cycles. So it didn't matter for example, in 2020, whether I voted for Biden as a Democrat or as a working families party in the general election, he still got the votes either way. And casting my vote for working families party gave them one more step towards hitting the threshold that they needed. Third parties who use fusion voting like WFP often have very different goals than just siphoning off votes from a major party candidate. And Mo and I talk about that a little bit. Uh, Before we get into that conversation, I wanted to talk about what's going on in Congress. Um, In the next three weeks, Congress has to prevent a government shutdown, not get stuck in a fight about the debt ceiling, pass an infrastructure bill, and pass the reconciliation bill that has all the really good stuff in it, like paid family leave and childcare and so much more. I don't want to get into the details and the back and forth of who's holding what bill hostage and why. One, because it's likely to change a hundred times between now and whenever you're listening to this. And two, because most of it is bullshit posturing with very little relationship to what's actually going to happen when the bills hit the floor. I will say, though, that as always, um, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are being particularly shitty. Like usual, the people who claim to be moderates are actually on the extreme end of things by refusing to meaningfully take action on things like lowering drug prices and creating paid family leave policies, which are, again, wildly popular. 
And as always, it feels like Democrats in Congress are negotiating against themselves and trying to get out of doing what they were ultimately elected to do, make people's lives better, which is always bad when they don't take action. But it's particularly bad at a moment when they are very likely to lose power in next year's elections and with that, lose any chance of governing again for at least a little while. Now, I will say it is my job to care about this and to pay attention and to do so is making me want to gouge my brain out with like a very rusty spoon. It is infuriating to listen, to watch, and to participate in. It's all bad, and that it's bad to both engage in and even observe from the outside is why people disengage. You need to be able to show folks how government and how organizing and how collective action can make things better, how there is a vision for a future that is better than the present if we work together to get there. And Congress, especially right now, feels like Democrats in Congress are committed to doing as much as they can to prove that vision wrong, which is just disappointing and disillusioning. And hopefully they will get their act together before it's too late. So with that, let's hear the interview with Maurice Mitchell from the Working Families Party. Maurice Mitchell, welcome to Battleground. It's good to be here. Um, First, for those who may not be familiar with the Working Families Party, can you give us a short history? Well, the Working Families Party started in the late 90s. And at the time, the Democratic Party had moved to a decidedly corporate sort of stance. And many people in labor and in grassroots organizations and progressives and others felt like it was time to develop an independent political structure that could challenge what the Democrats were doing and pull them much closer to the left, but also be completely independent of their prerogatives. And so, you know, it came out of this thing called the New Party, which was a nationwide strategy. But then eventually the Working Families Party started in New York at first using something called fusion voting, which allows minor parties or third parties to have ballot lines. And then in the general election, they could choose to cross endorse the candidates of other parties the votes that get tallied on their ballot line get fused together with other ballot lines. And it allows for independent third parties to avoid the spoiler problem that sometimes happens. We don't only have operations in states that have fusion. We use different strategies. But ultimately, for us, a party is people, number one, who come together to do electoral work. That's number two in order to advance an agenda that's number three. And that agenda is woven together by a coherent ideology, number four. When that happens, you're a party. Whether or not you have ballot access or if legally and fiscally you filed with whoever, you're a party. And so that's how we understand our role in the country to be this national grassroots political movement of everyday people, of labor unions, grassroots organizations, activists, organizers who come together and believe that the state our government should be run by the people and not corporations and the very wealthy. There is so much there I want to dig into, including both your work in New York and how it works outside of New York, the ways in which you think about being a third party and the distinction to be separate or and sometimes aligned with the Democrats. But I first want to sort of break down some terms here. You know, the Working Families Party is understood to be building a multiracial working class movement. Can you define working class for the sake of how WFP thinks about it? So the way that we understand it is people who have to wake up every day and do work 
in order <laughs> yeah. do some form of work in order to be able to perpetuate their lives, right? There's people who make money through capital gains. Mm-hmm. So they are not actually wage earners, right? There's also people who are very, very high net worth who don't have to work in their owning class. And they have very different prerogatives and in the class hierarchy have very different interests from people who are wage earners and other people who have to put in work in order to survive. So that's a lot of people. Yeah. (laughs) That isn't just necessarily like maybe how you might classically understand working class people as like industrial wage earners or yeah, you know, it's not it's, like the economic term definition usually yeah it's a pretty broad group of people but we think that distinction is really important because there's a small number of people who just by virtue of their wealth and their class position when they come together and organize politically through different vehicles they have very very different interests that we think collide with the interests of everyday people who have to work in order to feed themselves and their families and to be able to eke out some level of joy and pleasure from the limited time that we have on Earth. And so those are the people that we're attempting to organize. One or two more sort of level setting questions here. New Yorkers are pretty familiar with Working Families Party. You know, we see it on our ballot every election cycle. We see it in the news. It's always a big thing. For people who are not New Yorkers and may not be as familiar with what WFP has accomplished, can you brag a little bit? So like I said, WFP started in the late 90s in New York. There was only the New York WFP for a while. We're now in a lot of places. And, you know, it was like a crazy idea. The idea that you could do third-party politics in a way that really mattered was serious about power and really intervened in ways that people in power and the status quo would have an issue with. And so for the past 20 plus years, the New York WFP has been finding opportunities to recruit people like regular people, but progressives to run and win against status quo candidates. We often primary people who people think are unbeatable Mm -hmm. and we win. We're not afraid of primarying Democrats because we believe that the Democratic Party has been wholly or partially corporately captured and there needs to be a struggle inside that party. And also there needs to be independent political power outside of the Democratic Party. For example, Letitia James, her first electoral campaign was an independent WFP third party city council race. And now she is the attorney general of New York. And it was her independent investigation that led to this reckoning with now former Governor Cuomo, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The WFP in New York had a long multi-year strategy of electing progressives in the New York City Council. And now the New York City Council has a huge number of progressives, right, that are able to caucus together. One of the things that I'm proudest of is, you know, so let's talk about Governor Cuomo. So a lot of people outside of New York don't really know Governor Cuomo outside of his popularity during COVID, right? And the, the presentations every week, yes, every day. <laughs> those, those presentations. What we know is that his style of governance was transactional. He was no progressive, no friends of progressive change. In fact, he fought really hard to prevent progressive change. One of the things that he did was he worked with Republicans mm-hmm. to create a new caucus of turncoat Democrats, They were called independent Democrats. And those Democrats caucused with Republicans, depriving Democrats of the majority in the state Senate. So the Democratic governor deprived his own party of the majority in the legislature in his own state. 
Why did and you? Yes. Just to put a really fine point on this, part of this was because some of them wanted bigger offices. Yes, and yes. Like, it was political power, but also it's because some of them just wanted nicer offices inside the state capitol. It was the most naked yeah. patronage possible. So Working Families Party in 2018, we primaried all of them. Mm-hmm. And we were largely successful. We routed them. And we didn't just replace them with other Democrats. We replaced them with independent working families candidates who are independent from the Cuomo swamp. And they turned around and they were the thorn on Cuomo's side. And also we primaried him directly with Cynthia Nixon. And then they turned around and during this crisis where Governor Cuomo is embroiled in all of these allegations around sexual misconduct, sexual assault, sexual harassment, and also the deadly scandal in the adult homes where he was doing accounting to count deaths differently. Mm -hmm. So it was the independent people that we had elected that were willing to stand up and continue to hold them accountable that led to the downfall of Governor Cuomo. And so that is like a example of what's happening in New York that we're attempting to do in a lot of places that I think (laughs) demonstrate what's possible when you choose to engage in an independent politics that is both really practical, but also visionary when it comes to principle. Battleground will be back after a quick break for more on how to actually build a multiracial democracy with Maurice Mitchell. Welcome back to Battleground. We're talking with Maurice Mitchell from the Working Families Party. So in New York, I theoretically could register as a Working Families Party member. I'm registered as a Democrat because I like voting in presidential primaries from 2016. But you can register as a WFP member. And when you go to vote, in, the, especially in the general election, candidates are often double listed as Democrats or WFP. And I would say I always vote WFP line in the general election so that you get the requisite number of votes to stay on the ballot for the subsequent cycle. In states where that's not the case, where there isn't fusion voting or the same kind of interaction on the ballot, how does Working Families Party function as a political party in the same way? Or is it not the same? Yeah, well, we're nimble. So fusion exists on the books in a number of places, Connecticut, Mm -hmm. New York, South Carolina, Oregon, a few other places. But most states don't have fusion, right? And we look at the terrain and we decide how we could show up independent of the Democrats and Republicans and be effective. And our North Star is to create the conditions where progressives govern, not Democrats, progressives govern. So let's take, for example, Philadelphia. 
Philadelphia as a WFP hotbed, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have fusion voting. Um, Philadelphia and some Northeast cities have a statute. So their city councils always have sort of set aside city council seats for the minority party, right? Mm-hmm. So that tends to be the Republican Party. And in a place that's so Democratic like Philly, what it means is that the Republicans just have to lift a finger and they get these seats, these at-large seats. And we think that that is anti-democratic because Mm -hmm. they have more seats than are commiserate with their actual voice in the city and their numbers in the city. And we felt that there were more progressives than Republicans. And if we organize progressives around the WFP as an independent third party, we could take those at-large seats. We did that in 2019. Kendra Brooks, who is a independent working class socialist identified activist from Nicetown in Philly is now a independent WFP at large city council person. And this is the first time in modern history that we have a situation like that. So now there's Democrats and WFP people and some Republicans on the Philly city council. In other examples, basically what we do is hack the Democratic Party's primary. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. So we recruit people who aren't like dyed-in-the-wool Democrats, but who are true progressives. And we essentially say, hey, Democrats, we're going to borrow your primary for a second, recruit (laughs) our people, and have this conversation about what direction our country or this community should go in and whether or not government should be used as a vehicle to invest in people or not. And we recruit people in Democratic primaries and endorse people in Democratic primaries all over the country in order to do that, not just deep blue places, but... In yeah, places. I was going to ask. Yeah, so Georgia is kind of purplish. We're interested long-term in shifting Georgia into becoming a progressive state. So, like, in Atlanta, we have a whole slate of independent progressives that are primarying folks in the city council. There's a mayor's race in South Fulton, East Point, Clarkston, Sandy Springs, cities that a lot of yeah. folks nationally don't know about. But on the municipal level... It's huge. It's huge. And in every state... There are pockets of progressives that need a voice. And oftentimes the Democratic Party infrastructure has atrophied and simply doesn't have the capacity to effectively contend. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's some of the work that you do. Right. And you mentioned Sandy Springs. We're working with the same mayoral candidate there. And I think it's it's so interesting because I think it's an indication of the way that the Democratic Party sort of establishment has lost the long-term vision, which is something we come back to on this podcast all the time. When you're not engaging on these local ways, you are missing how you build power. Absolutely. And also the whole idea of there being some red states and blue states, Mm -hmm. that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Absolutely. Right. And if you're only focused on investing in battleground states, then those are the battleground states. Right. It's tautological. Yeah. And so challenging those concepts and investing in places where Our people are, but have been ignored or haven't been resourced or invested in. That allows us to expand the map. And, you know, there's like Texas, we elected the first black mayor of Cedar Hill. Mm -hmm. We helped elect Jose Garza, who is like a transformative district attorney. Not just like, oh, good for Texas, like a true progressive district attorney in the heart of Texas. And then West Virginia, we have a West Virginia Working Families Party. We helped elect a five-person slate in Morgantown. We fought to get folks in the legislature that nobody thought would be able to get. You know, there's a delegate named Daniel Walker who's amazing. 
I get super excited and I nerd <laughs> out about the municipal and the legislative races. Those are our bread and butter. Yeah. Like we endorse all the way up to presidential, but it's those races over time and that leadership development pipeline, I think that will transform our politics. This is what the far right has known for years. Yep. You know, it's almost like cliche to talk about how the far right in the late 70s and the early 80s invested in school boards and other things. Like, they really did that work. Mm-hmm. And over 40 years, it had a tremendous effect. We're living in the politics that they're organizing over 40 years, created the conditions for. If we had that level of long arc thinking... And that attention span. <laughs> and <laughs> think, That's a very good way of putting right? it. <laughs> think, think about what we could do in 20, 30, 40 years in this country. I mean, this is just the thing we keep coming back to on the show over and over again. Democrats love the shiny object at the expense of meaningful change. I wonder, do you believe that we can stay a two-party country? So I have a lot of thoughts about this. So I, I figured. <laughs> I, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what's going to happen, but... We live in a very rigid two-party government. On top of that, we're a country that is the size of a continent, and there's more than 300 million people, right? And why I say that is that we have a lot of regional, racial, and ideological diversity that makes it hard for two parties to be able to hold that diversity and size and overlaying a two-party system on top of that makes inherent fissures and internal contradictions within those two parties, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that means that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are rife for rupture. So within the Republican Party, we're seeing that right now, where actual white nationalists and conspiratorial Trumpists are the protagonists of the Republican Party. And there are institutional Republicans, but they're kind of captured by this... Nipping at the edges... Right. By this movement. And, you know, and now there's like these never Trump Republicans. There's people five, maybe 10 percent. So that never Trump Republican in a multi-party state, they would be their own party. Mm -hmm. The Trumpist would be their own party. The institutional people, the corporate people would be their own party. And we think that they're either going to figure out how to keep that thing together, but it seems they're keeping it together with string Barely. (laughs) Or there's going to be rupture. Now, in the Democratic Party, and progressives and leftists and others have a hard time processing this, we are all in a united front, often, with Democrats, right? Uh Like, I lead a separate party. Oftentimes, I join in a united front with Democrats. So it's almost like we are a multi-party sort of system, and people who don't see themselves as Democrats join in. Like, we endorsed Joe Biden. Joe Biden was not our pick. We endorsed Joe Biden, <laughs> right? But there also are fissure lines and ruptures. We're seeing it right now. You know, three Democrats in the Congress in relatively safe seats, you know, voted against holding accountable pharmaceutical companies and negotiating with pharmaceutical companies. The only rational reason is because the pharmaceutical lobby got to them, right? The other thing I, I'd say is that elections and maintaining these parties, very expensive. Wall Street invests in both parties, almost equally. Mm-hmm. There's different industries that invest in one party more than the other. And so there's a corporate neoliberal leading force in the Democratic Party, even though the Democratic Party's base is very independent and wily. They, I think, fundamentally agree that the current economic system with some minor changes is the economic system that should prevail. And they probably believe in a more cosmopolitan sort of socially liberal 
country, but they don't believe in the transformation of our economy and our society in the way that that I or you might, right? Mm -hmm. They're in the same party as people who identify as democratic socialists. Mm-hmm. That seems untenable, right? So <laughs> when I look at the future, I think a number of things might happen. I think it's possible that the Republican Party might collapse on the weight of its contradictions and turn into a regional versus a national phenomenon. Now, th- that can only happen if we defeat their efforts to change the rules and, yeah. we, it, it, you know, it has to do with a lot of things. Number one, they bet really big on white Christian identity. Yeah. And demographically, it's becoming harder and harder to win big elections like statewide elections and federal elections with just people identify. Unless you rig the rules and then you can win whatever you want. Unless you rig the rules. So they're trying to figure that out. They're aware of that. And they understand that they're at this existential crossroads. They're using political violence, the rigging of the rules, and then also trying to like diversify. Yeah. They're doing all three things to kind of keep their thing together. There's nothing suggesting that that stuff is actually going to hold. So that could actually happen. Um, I think that the Democratic Party is not impervious to rupture. Mm -hmm. So I think it's possible in that future. My aspiration is that the WFP or the forces in and around the WFP can become a political third force in American politics. And we actually popularly think about Mm -hmm. Democrat, Republican, working families. Let's take a quick break. More of my conversation with Maurice Mitchell when we return. And we're back with Maurice Mitchell. One of the common critiques of the far left and i think it's both done in bad faith and also like most bad faith arguments has like a little nugget of truth in there is that the voters that ostensibly the far left and far progressives are often fighting for are often not aligned actually with progressive candidates especially i think there's some tension between the economic values and the social or cultural values how do you navigate that tension organizing Mm -hmm. so i think there's some folks who think that the righteousness of their political positions are Mm self-evident. And all we need on the left or as progressives is a big enough megaphone. And like, if we just spoke our convicted truths loud enough, (laughs) the masses would immediately respond. Yeah. Right. I, I don't take that position. I think you need to organize your position. You need to struggle with people. The current hegemonic project is not a left. Yeah. Project. It is a corporate and capitalist and white supremacist and patriarchal and all the other words, hegemonic project. So like, what does that mean? The water that we're swimming in, the air that we're breathing, the normative understanding of what is normal is those things. Mm -hmm. So we shouldn't be surprised when everyday working class people espouse views that may contradict with their own position. Because that is the normative value. People say things like, yeah, government should be run like a business. People just say that. They don't think about what that actually means, right? Because it's the air that we're breathing in, right? So that means for us as progressives, as people on the left, we have to fight for every inch of space. And by that, I mean creating enough space where a teacher or an MTA worker after, you know, driving their route on the bus, we could help salvage and protect some space for those people. So instead of thinking about the day-to-day reality, 
they're able to think one or two steps above that. And they're able to perceive their world one or two steps above that. I believe that when given that space, people will draw those connections for themselves. Be like, oh, wait, so instead of having all this antipathy against somebody I don't know, but I'm angry at because they're an immigrant, maybe I should have that against my boss who cut my pay or cut my hours. Organizing helps you have the space to make that happen, but that requires consistent, careful engagement with people on the ground, the multiracial working class. And it also means you meet people where they're at and you're not appalled by the fact that they're not thinking (laughs) right thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. You accept people in the condition that you find them and you engage in them honestly and you build trust over time and consciousness shifts over time. That's how we get our people the multiracial working class to align ideologically and electorally with their self-interest. But it's not, it doesn't happen magically. It doesn't happen overnight. This is the unglamorous work of organizing year in and year out. Yeah. And I think one of the things, at least from my understanding of Working Families Party that you've done really well is handle the intersection of movement and electoral. And I think folks who don't work in politics or study movements or electoral politics understand is there actually is a distinction in many ways, both between the people who work in this, like I'm an elections person. I don't organize protests. That's just, that's not what I do. And then there are some organizations that exclusively do protest and issue work and, you know, showing up at Capitol Hill or in state capitals. Um, I find that tension to be both really interesting and also at the center of some of the biggest intra-family debates in the Democratic Party and the broader left of what is the best way to achieve change. How do you as WFP and you as Maurice Mitchell handle that sort of center space of the overlapping Venn diagrams of elections and movement organizing? So the way I look at it is that our social movements are the tip of the spear. They should be leading us. Our social movements should be producing new ideas and popularizing those new ideas New ideas, by definition, are initially not popular, right? (laughs) And they often create helpful fissures in society. They create which side are you on moments, right? And they play the role of offering a blueprint of the world that we want. And that fires people up and often brings millions of people in mass into the movement. And anybody who cares about our collective freedom should want millions of more people to be in our movement. I think... Elections are good at, and this is what we try to figure out at WFP, how can we secure and lock down victories, help answer the questions through policy that the movement asks in relationship and right relationship with the movement through electing people. Like, for example, the movement is posing this question around state violence and around the criminal justice system. We elect Jose Garza, Mm -hmm. who could do something about it. Right. Instead of the movement having a position that is only antagonistic against people who are pulling the levers of the state, folks who are aligned with the movement, but are electoral, who are not movement people, who are not in the streets, could help elect people in positions of power that are in right relationship with the movement and are looking at their role as concretizing movement gains. If there isn't people in the electoral lane that you're aligned with, then there'll be people in the electoral lane that you're not aligned with that will answer that question. 
The movement poses the question in a, such a popular way, it demands answering and it will get answered. For example, Movement for Black Lives, State Violence Against Black People, Taser International, a multinational corporation, their answer to state violence against black people is body cameras. Mm -hmm. So they sold a product and they actually worked with state legislatures, municipal governments, police departments to make body cameras the answer. So body cameras was the neoliberal and corporate answer to a question that was proposed by black radicals, right? And so if we could have in the lane folks who are able to take state power to answer the questions, then it, it is us using all of our capacities in order to advance the movement's interests. That's why we're a party. We're bringing together different coalitions under us and different forms of power under us, activists, social movements, labor institutions, grassroots organizations, in an electoral united front where we're saying, hey, we're different. We disagree on certain things. But in this election, we're joining together to make sure Jose Garza or any number of progressive candidates win so that all of our interests are benefited. One of the things that I think is inherent in what you said, but I want to make explicit, was when you're just talking about organizing, you need the teacher or the the person that you're trying to get to, to join your movement to see that the true enemy is not the immigrant trying to take their job. It's the boss or the boss's boss or the corporate system. And I do think one of the problems that we often face is that it's so much easier to get mad to like, punch at or punch down than it is to punch up because it's really hard to win punching up. So you need, as an organizer, an optimistic vision. You need to be able to tell a story of here's how we are going to win and what we are going to win in order to get that person participatory. Maurice Mitchell, what is your optimistic vision? What is the story you tell people about what is possible? So I believe in people power. The thing that I know to be true is that when everyday people come together, there isn't an obstacle that they can't overcome. I've seen on the local level, I've seen on the national level, I've seen on the international level. However, that's not inevitable. Mm -hmm. So we have this like potential power that we could tap only through organizing. It is the thing that allows us as regular people to tap into our superpower, which is each other. And when we do that, yes, corporations with all of their money, city hall, they could fall. Like look at Governor Cuomo looked like he was invincible just a few months ago. Yeah. He's no longer governor. I say another world is possible, but another world is not inevitable. So I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish about things. We live in a really hard world. We live in a world where people with power oppress and make the lives of, of people without as much power very hard. We live in a world where people who have a lot of prestige and who sit on the top of the hierarchy use a lot of their energy to stay on top of the hierarchy and keep other people down. And there's a lot of examples of really miserable things. And there are countless examples of us as regular people deciding, you know, enough is enough. And both the outcome of that is truly amazing, but the doing of it is really fun and really beautiful mm -hmm. and is a lovely journey. And so my optimistic invitation is, what side of history do, do you want to be on? And who are your people in the limited time that you have on this planet? It's a lot of fun on this side, right? Yeah. It's a lot of fun on this side. And it's very fulfilling to live your life and you're able to take down bullies. Who doesn't like taking down bullies? That's also pretty cool.
um, it helps you declare for yourself and the people closest to you who you choose to be in this moment. And that can help create so much meaning in a world that is increasingly hard to make meaning of for everyday people. This is maybe the most optimistic conversation we've had on the show in a while. So Maurice Mitchell, National Director of Working Families Party, thank you for taking the time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much to Maurice Mitchell from the National Working Families Party for joining me on Battleground this week. I am loving the ideas our listeners are sending in. So thank you to everyone who has emailed us or left us a voicemail. If there's someone you think we should have on the show or a topic you'd like us to cover, please leave a message at 929-399-6748 or email us at battleground at therecount.com. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams and Megan Burney are associate producers. Tara Adovino is our producer and story editor. And Christian Castro-Rosell is our executive producer. 